welcome to another episode of Double Shelix and the first episode of You Do Belong in Science. And we are really excited to present this series to you all and tell you why we're putting this series together. Sally? Yeah, so we are really honored to receive a grant from the Berkeley Student Technology Fund to support this important series of podcast episodes, which is going to be released every Tuesday in April and the first Tuesday of May 2018. In this series of episodes, we want to start conversations about how we can create communities within science where everyone can feel belonging. As part of the series, we're really excited to bring experts from science, technology, and inclusion together in conversations about how we can all work to create spaces within science where everyone can feel belonging. And our expert guests are going to be speaking on topics ranging from how we can do outreach to kids and teens, what's effective and what's not, through issues faced today by women in STEM and the hurdles that we still have to overcome as a scientific community to help women feel belonging, ways to transition from undergraduate to graduate school and making sure that students who are underrepresented as in PhD programs can still feel like they belong and are valued within PhD student communities. We have a ton of awesome guests. We do, and we're so excited about it. We've just It's been a lot of fun getting to talk to all of these awesome people and hear their stories, and we're just really excited to share them with you. Yeah, and we do have, as part of the grant funding, we do have some special giveaway items, which we can talk about at the end of the episode, so stay tuned to figure out how you can get your special Double Shelix podcast sticker with our cool new logo, and um, we're also going to have stickers available that say, you do belong in science, so that mentors can give these stickers out to their mentees and be like, you do belong in science, and the mentee can be like, oh my god. <laughs> anyway. Um, stay tuned for how to for information about how to get those for yourself and just distribute them to your networks and your mentees. But it's time for our first episode. It is. Let's welcome Dr. Tamara Alliston. We are super excited to be able to have Dr. Alliston on our podcast because not only is she super accomplished researcher and scientist, but she's also one of the most highly respected professors in our department. She's really well respected in our department, not just for her research, but also for her true dedication to mentoring students within her own group, to mentoring students who aren't in her own group. I think both Kayla and I are beneficiaries. Oh, absolutely. Um, Tamara, she's a huge supporter of us and this podcast series, and she's a huge supporter of you. Yes. All right. So (laughs) let's roll the tape on our episode with Tamara Alliston, professor at UCSF. You guys are going to love it. Enjoy the episode. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Double Shelix. I'm Kayla. I'm Sally. And today, we're delighted to welcome to the podcast Dr. Tamara Alliston, a professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. Thank you so much for being with us today. This is going to be so much fun. I'm glad to be here. Yes, and we're very excited to have you as part of our You Do Belong in Science series. Um, So maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about your journey into science and what you're doing now. Absolutely. Well, I was especially delighted to hear about the theme of your podcast right now with you do you do belong in science because I do not have a journey that was a I knew I wanted to be in science from the start. Um, And it was really an organic journey of figuring that out along the way. I think if people would have asked me, I would have thought I would be an international journalist correspondent like Tamara Alliston reporting from Istanbul. (laughs) (laughs) 
but um, I thought that would be too competitive, and so I needed to find another career where I thought like I would... Like being a tenure-track faculty at an R1 research institute. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so easy. So, yeah. Um, I know, like, that's the way I was thinking at that time in my life, <laughs> just mature decisions. Um, and um, I had to take a science course for my common core requirements, and my advisor just said, you yeah, know, take another one and finish off those. And I really, I liked psychology, learning about it, and I did do some research, and I learned a lot, and so I really value that. I still really didn't know what I wanted to do, but decided to go do plant research because I heard they would pay me to go to North Carolina for a summer. And like I'm like, hey, that sounds really fun. I'll do that. And so then I did that and came back. And yeah, so my journey was, you know, really hopping around. I was an undecided major. I tried a bunch of different things. I loved women's studies and the philosophy and religion classes, but I didn't feel like that's what I could do as a career. I think along the way, I realized I really liked teaching and interacting with people. And in order to work at the level that I wanted to, I realized I would need to get a, a higher education degree in order to accomplish that. Um, so it was really because of my desire to teach that graduate school seemed like a good option. I was also thinking about doing things like Teach for America or being a consultant at that time, because I, I really did not see myself as a researcher. And, you know, so grad school was tough. Grad school was obviously driven towards training you to be a scientist, not to be a teacher. And it felt really challenging for me to go from a small liberal arts school into our one institution mm -hmm. and learn all those things. It felt like a foreign language. I really didn't feel like I belonged at all. Mm -hmm. um, it took a long time. Well, even at the end of grad school, I still didn't feel like I was a very good scientist. I felt like I was really good at coming up with good ideas, but technically was not somebody who had good hands. Mm -hmm. um, and then my husband, who is a physician, uh, matched and uh, for residency. And the first choice was to go to the DC area. And the second choice was San Francisco. And he uh, didn't match in the DC area. So my ambition to go into science policy um, really oh. left at that moment because in San Francisco, the policy options weren't great, but the science options were amazing. Mm -hmm. And I got a great postdoc mentor who was doing beautiful science and I just, and really encouraged me to work hard and go for it. And in that time, I, I really uh, learned the skills to be able to do science the way I want to. And when people talk to me about this, I kind of compare it to someone who's learning to do artwork. Um, and before you can be the modern or abstract artist, you need to learn those fundamentals of drawing still lifes. And I felt like it was finally in that time as a postdoc that I got good enough at the fundamentals that I could then start being creative and doing my own thing. And that's when I really became a scientist. Hmm. Well, I think that's really beautifully put. Um, now that you are like a scientist and you feel like you do belong in as a scientist, like what's one project or idea or thing that you're really passionate about or thinking for for the future? Yeah. Or for right now? Okay. Thanks for asking. I would love to tell you. Um, <laughs> I want to develop the next drug to treat skeletal disease. And cool. I think that not only will it treat skeletal disease, but I think it will have implications for things like potentially diabetes or aging as well, because I think we're 
just unlocking a whole nother level of understanding how the skeleton plays a fundamental role in our systemic health and coupling the mechanical role of the skeleton with the biological and endocrine role. And we discovered this new cellular mechanism along with others in the field or rediscovered it because it was originally discovered in 1910, but kind of forgotten. Um, the coolest parts. I know. <laughs> crazy. Um, but now that we can apply all these molecular tools to these problems, um, I think we need to find some new drugs that can target this cellular mechanism and maybe prevent bone fragility. Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. It's exciting. Uh, I liked your point about... Um, how the skeletal system functions in overall health. I feel like a lot of people, when they think about their bones, they're like, oh, yeah, they're the workhorse, but, you know, <laughs> I'm just yeah. here to stand on them. Um, yeah. But you think about them less as, as an influential part of your, mm-hmm. your biology. You are exactly right. I think that is one of my favorite things when I talk to people outside of skeletal biology is to tell them, help wake you up to how alive your skeleton is. Mm-hmm. And... When you look at the way that cells in the skeleton look, they look just like nerve cells from head to toe all the way through your entire body. So, And there are aspects of the way your bone cells function that are very similar to what nerve cells do. Hmm. So I think it's time for us to start thinking about our skeleton as this other mechanosensory apparatus that couples our biology to the mechanical environment. Yeah, and not just that you're... Teeth are the hardest part of your body. Yeah, <laughs> That's a, exactly. Like, exactly. Fact. Yeah. Um, so you spoke a little bit about how like it was a long process for you to go from a PhD student who was feeling like there was some still some deficits in your education to now like one of the stellar scientists in your field. Um, but can you talk a little bit more specifically about you know what th- were those things that helped you in those times where you feel like you didn't belong to transition to those times where you felt like you were a member of this field and that you were truly contributing? My my friends and colleagues, the other people who were training with me, especially my the other women, um, I vividly remember a time, it was you know, maybe in the time at, during postdoc when all of us were sort of going through the having babies stage and it, it was tough. Um, and I remember being together with a group of women that we had trained together and one of them said, if we don't do it, who will? And I, I feel like on those bad days that I still hear that question um, coming to me of, yeah, I mean, we, we have every potential opportunity here. And yes, it's hard, but somebody's got to do it or it's not going to be any easier for anyone coming after us. Uh, so that, that does inspire me. And, and it kind of also makes you say, well, yeah, we're imperfect. We're not as good as we might wish to be, but we are more than good enough to do this. And we have something unique to bring to the table. That helps. That's such a good one. <laughs> yeah, and actually, um, I feel really strongly, I actually feel strongly enough that I wrote a blog post about it one time, about how in graduate school, I don't know if this is true for everyone, but for me personally, like the most valuable relationships in terms of my professional success are the relationships with the other women who are at my university in my program in my same cohort. Because there's something about, you know, when you speak to, for example, qualifying exams, right? Like if you speak to an older student like me now, I'm going to be like, qualifying exams, like it was really hard, but like it was such a great learning experience and it's not that bad, right? You'll be but fine. <laughs> when, you're, when you haven't taken quals yet, that that advice means nothing. It doesn't. Because right. you don't believe it applies to you. Exactly. Because <laughs> you don't but really belong. Yeah, exactly. But like the friendships with age-matched, 
women peer mentors mm. is been so valuable. Yeah. And Kayla's one of them. But right back at you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, but I think I totally yeah. agree that. Well, how can we help the people who are younger than us um, to believe those messages? How can we deliver those messages of encouragement in a way that makes it more credible? I think one way is to not just say like, oh, quals, using that as an example, like, oh, quals, like, it's fine, it's fine. But to say, yeah, when I was in your shoes, I was really stressed and I was in a library for nine hours a day and I was like freaking out and I did have many sleepless nights and talk about what you did experience and then show that how you overcame and like how you transitioned your thought more than just, oh, it was fine, trivializing what you did experience. And I think people who reflect on bad situations in the past it doesn't seem that bad. Right. But if you can self-reflect and understand how you felt at the time and convey that along with how you feel now, it can show people that they too can make the bridge between feeling bad and then feeling good. Not to mention just, for example, what you're doing now is sharing <laughs> part of this yeah. journey with us. Absolutely. I, it's easy to, uh, I think in an academic setting where it is very hierarchical, kind of look at these two directions and think, well, you know, the the people ahead of me are way better than I'll ever be. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> and the people who are coming behind me, they're also going to be better than me. <laughs> so I wasn't that good at that stage. Right. And I, I think we were talking the other day about, like, we're fourth years now. And I think about when I was a first year, who those fourth year students were. And in my mind, they were so put together, mm-hmm. like so accomplished, so grown up, know about everything. And I don't feel like I'm accomplished, grown up, put together and know about things, but like <laughs> probably the first years think that I do. So yeah. that gives me some, <laughs> something okay, to go off of. double Shelix. <laughs> let's, be, let's get real. <laughs> I think there are a few first years looking up and thinking, oh, how do they do that? <laughs> I'm stressed about my calls. <laughs> For those of you about to take your class, it was stressful. <laughs> 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 no <Aww>. lies. <laughs> but we are we're still alive. So. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and the quals advice I have for everybody who comes to talk to me is to remember that the people on your quals committee, the faculty, they really want to see you succeed. Yeah. That's that is the bottom line. And for me, what flipped the switch is I think. I think Allison told me this, and I think that she got it from you because you were her chair. But one of the things that flipped the <laughs> switch for me in my mind was when someone was like, if this was your project at a startup company, how much money would you have to pay to get these four people in the room to give you advice on making your project better for two hours? That's at least four figures. And oh, then yeah. you told me that, and then I was really excited. About it. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> You know, as in your role as a mentor, mm-hmm. how do you encourage your mentees to feel like they belong in science and or just uh, take it through the, the grind and be their best self? Well, I think there's um, there's two parts. There's the individual relationship um, that I cultivate, and it's very individual. And the other part is creating a lab environment that allows that to happen because I'm talking with people maybe, you know, an hour or two a week, Mm. Um, but they're sitting, you know, the people in my group are sitting with one another every day, all day long. Mm -hmm. And it's that culture that's going to support 
them in becoming the scientists they need to be and um, and helping them find their place. So um, some of the principles I like to create in my lab culture is to make it a place that uh, to have enough trust with my the people in my lab that they feel safe to take chances mm-hmm. and um, that even if they take a chance and they're not successful, that it's going to be okay. They're still going to graduate and get a job or whatever's, you know, the next thing will happen for them. And if it, you know, if things go off the rails because they're, you know, go for it, attempt didn't work, then we do have a good plan B um, that's going to help them. And I think that's a really, yeah, that I feel like that's my most important thing. If I can create that atmosphere of trust, then those other things can happen. Um, and then I really like to interact with people in my lab, both on the scientific level and also I strive to help people stay connected to what gives them joy, mm-hmm. um, whether that's something in the lab. And sometimes that does come from the lab and sometimes it doesn't because sometimes <laughs> things in the lab are not going great. So trying to stay connected to other things that that bring you joy. What, what kinds of things do you like to stay connected to? For myself? Yeah. yeah. Oh, something that brings me joy, well, my family is mm-hmm. definitely one. Um, I have two kids uh, who are teenage boys, and they're really fun. Um, <laughs> and one of my favorite things to do with them is to go surfing, uh, which I don't do nearly enough. But um, that is especially good for another reason, because surfing is hard enough that you have to stay in shape. And so even if I don't surf very often it does motivate me to exercise, which helps me stay centered. So yeah. You probably think about how it's helping your bones. Yeah, I I, I, absolutely. <laughs> Most you definitely. You when it yeah. comes to bones, right? Oh, man. <laughs> your bones are helping you out. Every time you exercise, they are just sending goodness throughout your entire body, feeding your brain. I think when I took biochemistry, I spent, like, I couldn't, there was a phase where I couldn't do anything without thinking about what biochemistry was happening when I was doing that activity. TCA <laughs> psycho. Yeah. <laughs> this is a little obsessive. I need to stop thinking about this. So you're saying when you leave here, you're going to like pick up your coffee mug and be like, okay, bones, like go, go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> so you talked about your family and your, and like as one thing that brings you joy, but we understand that like not all women in science have families, whether by choice or not. And so um, when you think about like, creating a space that's welcoming in science for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like a lot of the conversations are centered around like making it okay, great for moms in science. And I think that that's true, but I think we should also be making it great for all women in STEM regardless and all people in STEM, regardless of parenthood status. So um, how have you like seen those attitudes kind of change over the course of your career? And like, what's your stance on mm-hmm. women in STEM? Well, I would agree completely that far too much of the focus is on issues related to parenting uh, rather than women in STEM. And those are parenting issues and should be issues related to men and women. Um, But I've been to so many receptions or networking functions at different things where uh, and I usually go to these because actually I really find it um, satisfying to meet the other women in my field and to get to know them better. because it's fun and also because they're smart and good allies and uh, partners. But too many of these conversations do focus on childcare and division of labor at home uh, with, with parenting. And it really short shrifts the, the, I think, even more serious need for us to talk about the inequities in 
among between the genders and mm-hmm. science. Um, so I think we need to shift to that conversation. And I think we've gone with this illusion for so long that, oh, it's a pipeline issue and it's going to get better. But that is just not true. And I would also say that uh, if we if we continue that way, we're going to be waiting forever, literally. Yeah. And it gets worse. I think that I don't think I was fully uh, sorry to be discouraging. I, I don't think I was fully aware uh, of the magnitude of these things. Uh, but the more senior I get, the more I, the more present these issues are. And um, yeah, we need we need to do some creative work on this yeah. topic. So first, I'll say that listeners don't know this, but Kayla and I did actually record an episode called "The Pipeline Problem Is BS," but it was so full of our rage that we haven't been able to edit it yet <laughs> to make it sound professional. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the other question I will ask is: so, what other issues beyond issues related to parenthood um, do you identify as? things that are like you mentioned the big discrepancies between um, access to success in STEM mm-hmm. between the genders or between people who are represented versus underrepresented yeah. in science. Well, um, I, you know, I'm glad you mentioned people who are underrepresented because this is obviously much more broad than just for women. Um, I can speak more directly to the issue of women. I've been looking at some data recently. Um, there's a report that comes out every year that says which you know medical school departments are, gives a ranking for which ones have the most NIH funding. And this is something that my department tracks closely. And this year, for the first time ever, we're number one. So I'm really Yay. excited about that. <laughs> but along with that um, data, it also has a list of the top funded investigators um, for each, for orthopedic departments, for example, well, specifically. And um, when you look at the top 50, and it's a list of like, I don't know, 200 people, um, there are no women in the top 10. Um, There are just a few in the top 25. And then, you know, I think it's about 25% women in the Mm. top 50. So, and then if you look at that and you figure out how many dollars are available for that, then um, less than 10% of the funding is going to women out of the top 50 funded NIH researchers oh in orthopedics. And so this data set is not perfect. There's some issues with it, whatever. But let's just say it's one sample of the universe of you know, women and men in science. And so what's driving the fact that there's only 10% of the dollars going to women out of the top 50? Well, the top 10, um, those are all investigators are for the most part who have large center grants. So it's not just getting a bunch of R1s, but it's being the person who's seen as the leader at their institution who has enough credibility and authority to lead some big initiative. Um, And so I think that's really telling that either women don't feel comfortable stepping up into those roles because we don't feel like we belong in science (laughs) at some level or we don't feel like we belong in that leadership chair or we feel too stretched by uh, our, you know, trying to balance responsibilities. I don't know the reasons. Um, it could, I think there is an aspect of people not necessarily valuing the style of leadership that some women bring as, as fully as they might. But whatever the case, I think women need to be, what, what can we control, right? We right. can do a better job of encouraging one another to step up into those shoes and say, yeah, you'd be fantastic to lead a center grant. You should definitely apply and take the lead. You could do it. We can encourage each other to be less reluctant. So true. (laughs) 
in our first year, me and you made like a let's apply to things pact where we yeah. were like, let's <laughs> apply to all the things. Like we're both going to just apply to all the things. <laughs> we didn't apply to all the things, but I think we both have won something from that because we decided that we were going to apply to all the things. Yeah. 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 And also I have definitely taken Sally's heart words to heart and um, encouraged to be less reluctant yeah. about some of those decisions. So yeah. yeah, it's true. Something that everyone can take a look at their unconscious bias and yeah. think about like, how are they valuing? What is leadership? How are they valuing their colleagues? Mm -hmm. And is that being equitably evaluated amongst everyone? I think that's essential. And I think I'm really grateful that the NIH does an intentional job of making sure there's good representation of women and people from different geographic places and to Mm -hmm. the extent that it's possible, people from different underrepresented groups on study sections, because it really makes a difference. Yep. And uh, that allows women to be competitive for grants, which, of course, allows us to have a good publication record and to be in a position to lead something like a a large center. So I think we really need to pay attention for opportunities to improve our systems. And and that, you know, that representation really does matter. Yeah. And I think it's awesome that you shared like the data that you have from your field. And I think everyone can do to look into their field. You're from orthopedics, but mm-hmm. whatever your field is, look at the this data that's available. And just so you know for yourself, like yeah. you might think, oh, well, in biomaterials, it's much better. But like, is it much better in biomaterials? Like, I don't know. So being aware. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. I think another thing is, and we've all heard of the idea of the imposter syndrome, and it's easy for us to focus on that. And I think it's important, especially for women, to remember everybody feels the imposter syndrome. Um, and so name it. This is that feeling. Let's put it away and move on. Absolutely. Because I think we just have to build that mechanism to get beyond it and, and do what we're supposed to do and you know connect with your passion to help you get over that insecurity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had we had a, one of our early episodes discussing our experiences with imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that could be a whole podcast where each episode we talk about a different experience. <laughs> Just the imposter syndrome yeah. podcast. Yeah, that's oh. true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it doesn't stop. I mean, we still have it, but we can beat it. Mm-hmm. As a great example. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, Tamara, tell us on this note of reaching out and encouraging others and also sharing science. What kinds of outreach have you done in the past to educate or inform or just get involved with the community? Yeah, that's a great question Um, and such an important topic. Uh, There are lots of ways that I've, I guess, dabbled and played in different uh, arenas and um, usually this is this is part of the real joy and fun of being a scientist is getting to share our love of this field with others and see people who've never been in a lab just experience that for the first time. So I've invited kids from elementary schools or middle schools into my lab and you know, we put everybody in personal protective equipment and it's so fun to take photos of them all oh, with their lab coats and goggles on. Um, that's been fun. Um, and then also inviting in groups of adults. Mm. That's really, um, you know, people across decades who come in for the first time and see the things they maybe have seen on the evening news and, and the, that genuine excitement. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's fun to bring people into the lab. Um, I've gotten to give some talks with the California Stem Cell Agency to large community audiences 
On the related note, um, how do you see that this outreach is important for for the continuation of science? Yeah, mm. it's essential. I, I think basically, you know, science gives us a skill set and a set of tools to be able to collect data, analyze data, interpret it, question whether it's valid, and make a good conclusion and weigh it against other facts. And I think we have a responsibility as scientists to share that skill set broadly with others, but at least have these skills to help you make those decisions in an informed way and use those tools in all aspects of your life. um, Maybe when you're watching the news, that would be a good place. Or when you're reading what's on your social media, that would be a good place to bring those, uh, those skill sets. So I, I, think that's probably the best thing that I could do. And I've been thinking about this too, since I have the privilege of being a musculoskeletal scientist. (laughs) Um, I thought, well, you know, maybe another place that I could go and do some outreach is through the gym Mm, or the yoga class, right? You know, people all have, I think about as a mom of student athletes, I, I go to the talk when the nutrition person comes and talks about what kind of nutrition would be good for your student athlete. I think people would really be interested to hear more about their musculoskeletal system from a scientific perspective and also from an exercise perspective or yes. And the things that you guys do too. I think we need to scientists, we need to be more creative about finding out where we can connect and offer value to people. Yeah. Well, and I was really excited too, when you brought up the topic of adult outreach, because I, feel like when I get an email that says, will you outreach for this thing? It's like, will you come to this elementary school and do a cool science experiment? Yeah. And that's really fun and important and has so many great impacts. Um, but I sometimes worry that it's to the exclusion of sharing uh, scientific ideas with everyone who's already an adult. <laughs> so, and the avenues for that, I think, are a little bit less paved. It's just yeah. less clear. Yeah, but I love the point you raised about, like, you're not only a member of the scientific community, you're also a member of a gym community and of a student-athlete-parent community. So I think all scientists could do some introspection about which other communities they're involved in and how that intersects. Yeah, I love mm-hmm. that. And how can we make what we do accessible to people? Because it is daunting, right? You know, mm-hmm. I'm a scientist. Oh, you're a PhD. You're so smart or whatever. And this yes. gets to the very point of your podcast of you do belong in science right we are just normal people Mm -hmm. this is the job we chose and we've gone to a lot of school but (laughs) a lot yeah (laughs) but really there isn't some chasm of intellect between us and anyone else it's um so how can we how can we break down that that idea and yeah especially too because it's um I I think it's a career that comes with a lot of iconic ideas about Mm. what it looks like but does anyone actually know what I do all day probably not yeah and so when I tell someone that I am doing research they're like oh okay yeah it's kind of like when somebody tells me they're an investment banker oh okay (laughs) what else (laughs) yeah it's true I don't really know what they do all day Yeah, um, which is uh, very exciting to, well, at least I get excited to talk about it, but yeah. um, definitely interesting to see what people think I do versus what I actually do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so you've 
I think spoken about a lot of fascinating topics. And I think one of our listeners might be wondering, like, what's the secret? Like, how do you get it all done? <laughs> do you have any, like, practical strategies to share about how you are successful um, balancing your different responsibilities and balancing, like, your participation in different communities, both in science and outside of science? Mm. It, it, it isn't random that I've been able to make this life work, right? You know, there are things that have been structural things that have been pivotal and the first is, simple thing is I am very privileged to be able to pay someone to clean my house for me. That is a great thing. And I have done that for a long, long time. And I will not go back. <laughs> <laughs> Using money to make your problems go away? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I was actually listening to NPR the other day, and they were um, interviewing um, people who are, you know, especially a lot of undocumented people who are working in these helping professions. And I liked the phrase they use of like the work that makes all of their work possible. Um, And that is the house uh, home care. So the same person has taken care of my home for, uh, for 18 years. Wow. Yeah. And John and his team, they're fantastic. And um, then the people who took care of my kids when they were young, um, who helped pick them up after school occasionally, um, you know, so that my husband and I could go out for a weekly date night. And sometimes it would be a real like card carrying date. Other times it'd be, uh, I've got my grant due. Can you come over and work on stuff? And we'll be here <laughs> in my office together and get carry out Indian. <laughs> and, um, you know, so that's really important. Um, I think a partner who understands and respects and makes room for your passion for your work, there's nothing that can replace that. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough go and you, and you don't want to have to feel guilty about this, um, about these choices that we make to pursue this. Mm -hmm. I think those are probably the biggest, a supportive partner, house care and good childcare if that's a relevant factor in your life. A whole community of yeah, it really is. people making it work. <laughs> yeah. And I think that the, one of the gifts that, uh, you know, I think there are many gifts that children of uh, parents who choose to be at more at home than I am have. And there are also gifts that my kids have, which is like really learning to roll the punches and be flexible, resilient people. That's an important thing for especially people who are working moms to remember is that, you know, we, with the inconveniences, we're endowing our kids with some gifts as well. (laughs) Yeah, you just be flexible. Yeah. It's not such a bad skill to have. No. (laughs) Because life is crazy. (laughs) Kayla. Oh, yes. I think it's time for our favorite segment. It's shameless plug time. Shameless plug time. (laughs) Kayla, this is the time where we want you to plug anything that you want to plug shamelessly. Oh. So like your lab, your research, your social media. Oh. Yeah. Your new yoga instructor, like anything. Oh. Surf competition? I don't know. What is it? Yeah. Like? Nick. <laughs> Nick at Surf Bellinas. Oh, he's the best. He taught me how to surf and he's... 
He is so zen. (laughs) So yeah, that would be another thing that should be said is like find something that helps you when when you have those grants that don't get funded and (laughs) all of those things that science is full of failure. (laughs) You need to have something that something more than just a good frame of mind to help you get through those bumps. So, you know, for me, it's Belgian beer and Belgian chocolate. And what is your thing? I know it, together, together, yeah. um, and that helps on the, the first day. Then you don't read any, you know, critiques for a few days after that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like surfing, um, you know, there's something about being in the water that just frees my mind. And Nick is the person who gave me entree into that. So whatever it is, whether it's surfing or biking or yoga, mm-hmm. finding that thing. Um, the other shameless plug, I oh, I'm really excited because I will be. The sad part is I'm only the second woman to ever be the chair of this Gordon conference, and the last one to have done it is in 1998. Oh, Linda wow. Sandel, who is this stellar scientist, somebody I've always looked up to. So she did it in 98, and then I'm going to be the chair in 2020. I'm the co-chair for the one in August, uh, musculoskeletal biology and bioengineering. Um, that's happening in 2018, and uh, please apply. But I'm particularly jazzed about the 2020 meeting when I'll be chair, and so it will have been 22 years between women chair. And I talked to Linda last week, and I said, Linda, I didn't invite you this year because I want you to come the year that I'm chair and give a lecture, and she said she would. Oh, uh, congratulations on your Gordon Conference chairdom. Yeah, and I think that's ex- especially exciting because it's elected by your peers. Yeah, it and is. So, I mean, I mean, everything in science is chosen by your peers, but that's like <laughs> especially chosen it by your peers. Great. It was a great feeling. Yeah, that was very satisfying. Cool. Exciting. Yeah. And where can our listeners find out more about your research? Oh, um, Alliston Lab. Uh, we website. could put a link to it in the show notes. That would be great. Yeah. Because I don't think I know. It might be like dot .ucsf dot .tamara slash Something or other. Slash, slash, slash. Yeah. <laughs> well, but if you type in notes. Alliston Lab in Google, you'll get there. Excellent. Yeah. That's so awesome. It's been really awesome to talk with you. And Likewise. Hear all of your insights and share your encouragement with all of our listeners and with us. Yeah. I feel so inspired. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for everything you two are doing. Also, this is awesome. It's really awesome what you're doing and the creativity and dedication to make it happen. Thanks. Oh, thank you so much. We so appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> we love doing it. Yeah, yeah. it's been good. Mm-hmm. Well, awesome. Thanks for joining us, listeners. And uh, follow us on Twitter and subscribe to this. We're on the Google Play Store now, which is new <laughs> as of yesterday. But by the time this comes out, we will have been on the Google Play Store for like a month. Yeah. Um, and... <laughs> You do belong in science. You do belong in science. You belong in science, even when you don't think you do. So true. Oh, beautiful. Okay. So that concludes our fantastic episode with Tamara. To follow up, we just want to tell you a little bit about how else you can participate in this podcast. So first of all, uh, we want to invite you to share your stories. So to share your story, you can send us an email that's at doubleshelixpodcast at gmail.com. You can also share your story on our voicemail. So to do that, you can call 415-895-0850. And I'm sure you didn't have a pen and paper ready. So but it's in the show notes. It's in the show notes. So uh, check it out. We're really excited in future episodes of You Do Belong in Science series to be able to share stories from listeners about times where they felt like they did belong in science 
or times they felt like they didn't belong in science, um, things that worked or didn't work at their own university or institution in regards to efforts to increase belonging in STEM. Um, anything you want to share, like we'll happily, we're really excited to share your guys' voices on this podcast. Um, this conversation is live on social media on Twitter at Double Shelix Pod, hashtag you do belong in science, hashtag YDBIS. You can also share anonymously or not. Yeah. It's totally up to you. Yeah, like email us and we'll keep it anon. Also, we also, oh, the stickers. Okay, so if yeah. you're in Berkeley, just contact the podcast and we will give you the stickers and we will make it happen. Yeah. Um, stay tuned in future episodes. We're going to announce, we're going to have like a snail mail program where you can get these stickers and we'll mail them to you because we have some grant money to support buying stamps to mail you guys stickers, which we are super stoked about. If you are like really extra stoked and you want to be able to get like a bunch of stickers for yourself to give out to whoever you want, like besides just your own personal water bottle and laptop for your sticker, um, let us know and we'll happily send you that. We can also send you printed copies of our beautiful flyer designed by Kayla, um, which looks like a seminar series flyer for the coolest seminar series you've ever been to. So we happily, um, we will happily mail you that flyer and you can hang it up in the elevator of your building or whatever. Um, also on our website, we will have a link to a PDF of the flyer, which you can download and then share via email to your listservs, hashtag the podcast that you sent to listservs. Just kidding, but not really. Um, <laughs> and also we want to thank you guys for all your support. Um, this podcast is the brainchild of Kayla and myself, and we're just PhD students working on it in our limited free time. We have some help with editing, but we put a lot of effort and love into this podcast and we really appreciate the love that we get back from you guys. And if you're like, how can I help double Shelix? Like, tell people about this podcast. Yeah, that's very true. Yep. Yeah. And keep listening, and thank you. Thank you, guys. Um, other people to thank, besides the listeners, we love you. Um, also, thank you to the University of Pennsylvania Department of Bioengineering for supporting some of the production that goes into this episode. That's been very helpful. And also for their collaboration on some earlier episodes, which you should totally check out. Yeah. Um, um, if you love this episode with Tamara Alliston, I highly recommend our episode um, back in the thread with um, Dr. Leanne Doherty who is a lecturer in the University of Pennsylvania Department of Bioengineering, and her episode is all about, like, not only her own personal journey in STEM, but also, um, like, effective strategies for actually teaching and mentoring effectively, which... It's fantastic. It's Check amazing. It She's amazing. We love it. Okay. Yeah. We'd also like to thank the Berkeley Student Tech Fund, uh, which, again, as we mentioned in the beginning of the episode, they're supporting our promotions and... Uh, the production of this podcast and so we're just really grateful to be able to really take it to the next level and to bring you all some high quality work and some high quality stickers yes <laughs> and uh, also for our awesome podcast logo and awesome stickers uh, we worked with Gustavo Villarreal and you can find more about Gustavo's work at Wiki Rascals that's on Twitter at WikiVasco, so we'll link it up in the show notes. Um, fantastic logo and really great work. Yeah, we we're obsessed like with it. our logo. Yeah, <laughs> in case you can't tell. Um, it's Yeah, it's fantastic. So uh, check it out. Oh, in our next episode of the You Do Belong in Science series, it will be released on Tuesday, April 10th. Our guest to that on that episode is Noni Williams, a mathematics graduate student at University of Nebraska, Omaha. And she's going to be speaking about her experiences in math as well as her almost decade-long experience um, working with outreach, both STEM and other kinds of professional development outreach with kids and teens. Um, and I think that the conversation with Noni, which we've already recorded, I would say 
her insights about what works and what doesn't in terms of science and other kinds of outreach to kids and teens is basically the best conversation I've ever had about that in terms of what she suggests works, what doesn't work, like how we can, as scientists, truly engage with kids and teens in ways that have long-lasting effects. So I think you guys are really going to love that episode. Um, Noni's amazing, and it was a great conversation. So stay tuned for that next week. Um, subscribe. Tell, tell your friends about this podcast. And if you, want, if you love this podcast and want to share more about this podcast or our podcast stickers or a podcast flyer, like let me know, and we will get you that information. Okay. Thanks, listeners. Thank you, everyone.